0: Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, I ask that this morning we would hear the invitation issued by your Son. And I pray that you would open our eyes to see those who need to hear this invitation as well. Amen. Amen. The parable in Matthew 22 is a pointed confrontation message. It's a very pointed confrontation message. Jesus is speaking to the leaders of Jerusalem, the people who are leaders culturally, socially, politically, religiously. He's speaking to the Pharisees and the chief priests, the elders and the scribes. And this is a confrontation message. Imagine the confrontation. It happens in the courts of the temple. And he is face to face with the group of people who run this town and this nation. And he looks at them and he says, God is issuing and has been issuing an invitation to a feast. God's been sending this invitation out forever and ever. And imagine him looking them in the eyes and saying, and it's come first to men like you. It's come to people with the privilege, the education, the knowledge. You are the people that this invitation has come first to. You are the people who've deserved it, it seems on the world standards and he looks at them in the eyes and he says but this group that it's come to time after time after time has treated this invitation with contempt and what's thinly veiled behind this passage is him looking at them speaking not just historically but in the present and you men looking at me right now are guilty of the same you've treated it with contempt You've responded to this message by taking the messengers, God's prophets, and abusing them over and over and over. And looking at this current group, don't excuse yourself by saying, we wouldn't have done the same. Because what about John the Baptist? That's lurking right behind this. When he came declaring the way of righteousness, where were you? When he was in prison, Imprisoned for speaking the truth in God's name, where were you? Where were the lawyers who showed up to defend him? We know they were capable of doing this. They did it to persecute Paul across the Mediterranean, sending lawyers around there to catch him and ensnare him. He says, where were the lawyers? Why were you not in Herod's court defending John? You are no different. It's a confrontation message. But what lies behind this is a very simple truth that God has been issuing invitation after invitation to his people. And I want to start with that invitation because I think it's in that invitation we'll begin to understand what Jesus is saying and the frustration that he has. Look at Isaiah 25. I'm going to start with verse 6. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. The question that you might be tempted to ask is, who in their right mind would ever reject an invitation like that? God's going to throw a feast. All tears wiped away. Death swallowed up. Who would ever reject an invitation like that? But the reality is is that the invitation always came at a cost. It came at the cost of actual honesty, acknowledging our actual sin. It came at the cost of laying down our desires and our plans for our lives and submitting to the life, the obedience, the word of the Lord Jesus It came at the cost of trusting him rather than trusting our own ways of getting things. It came at a cost and it threatened those in power. Because for those in power, it came at the cost of acknowledging that they were using their position to build themselves up rather than to actually enact God's will. It was particularly threatening for them. And so this invitation that sounds so beautiful, the feast that God is throwing was rejected by them because the cost was simply too high. This current group that Jesus is staring at face to face is no different. John the Baptist came issuing an invitation. Issuing an invitation of forgiveness from sins, of cleansing issuing an invitation for having the road cleared out of your life so that the Messiah could come blazing in in all of his glory. He came issuing an invitation of being made right back with God and ready for him. But again, it came at the cost of actually stepping down into the water and saying, I am a sinner. It came at the cost of actually being like that person or like that one. And so these leaders who were willing to watch the spectacle... We're not willing to listen to the invitation. And so in the parable, Jesus says, those who did this, who abused the messengers and treated it with contempt, these will be judged. The king says to them, you've rejected me, I will reject you. And we step out of this very, very thinly veiled prophetic threat. And we hear Jesus speaking to these men directly saying, you have rejected God and he will reject you. This cannot go on forever. And indeed, 40 years after he said this word, the city was destroyed, and every single one of those men lost everything, every influence, position of power, every role that they'd ever had. It was a very thinly veiled prophetic threat that came true very quickly. But the parable doesn't end like that. The parable doesn't end with judgment, a burning city and people who are lost. Because in the parable, the king says to his servants, I'm not content with an empty feast. I'm not content with an empty home. In the parable, the king says to his servants, go out, go to the highways. Matthew tells this parable more strainedly than Luke does. Luke's in the ditches and under the bushes. In the modern world, the king's saying, go into the park and look under the bench. Go to the worst hotel in town and find the person sleeping in the lobby, sleeping off whatever happened last night. Go into the slums in the trailer parks, he says. Go wherever you can find somebody, he will say yes. I don't want my house empty. We step out of the parable and into real life. And we see in actuality Jesus and his disciples doing just that. Like the parable, a lot of the people to whom this invitation is issued and who accept this invitation, like the parable, a lot of those people look totally unworthy of being there. Jesus and his disciples show up at the houses of prostitutes, of tax collectors. They go find people living in rags on the outside of community as lepers, despised and unclean. They go find people with broken legs and arms, who can't be a part of community, who can't work. They find the people blind, covered in sores, sitting on the side of the road, begging for sense so that they might have a little bit of bread. They find the people, in other words, that are those people under the park benches, and they begin to bring them in into the kingdom of God. What Jesus is telling in this parable is exactly what he and his disciples have been doing all along. His earthly ministry, issuing this invitation over and over, And if the leaders won't receive it, who will? Go into the ditch and find the broken and the hurting and the sinful there. And just like the parable, those people don't look worthy. They look anything but worthy. They look like people who've been possessed by demons and sinned against their families and made every mistake. They look like people the world is crushed. But Jesus keeps issuing the call. And saying, Come to me if you're exhausted. Come to me. You look at the early history of the church after Pentecost, and you see the apostles continuing this mission that Jesus is describing in the parable. The last scene of the parable is ominous because the king comes into the feast and he sees a man there in filthy garments, and he says, Who let you in without wedding garments? And the guy can't answer. And so the king says, Bind him, cast him out into judgment. And he issues this epigram that there are many called, but few chosen. This ominous final scene says that there were some who come to the invitation, but actually are not allowed into the kingdom itself. And that is, at first glance, terrifying. It's not because they're unworthy. In fact, when you listen to the parable, you really realize that everybody who says yes to the invitation is effectively unworthy. Nobody can say, I deserve that. It's not because they're unworthy, but very simply, it's because they refuse to obey the Lord of the house. Let me explain. Throughout the scriptures, clothing is frequently a picture for the deeds that we do. And Jesus in Matthew is quite clear. This is chapter 7. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. The clothing is a picture of obedience. And what he's saying in this ominous warning at the end is that there will be some who will want to accept the invitation, but they won't be allowed in because they will refuse to obey. He's not saying that we earn our way into this feast. The invitation is grace. The ability to obey is grace. All is grace in the end. He's not saying we earn our way in. And he's not saying that somehow we could achieve moral perfection before we get to the kingdom. The offer of forgiveness is part and parcel with Jesus' message. He's not saying that we earn our way in or that we could achieve moral perfection. Instead, he's simply illustrating the truism that you cannot enter the kingdom if you're unwilling to kneel to the king. You cannot enter the kingdom if you're unwilling to kneel to the king. That The two things are inseparable from one another. In a silly way, you could say something like you can't live in a world with gravity's benefits without also personally obeying its laws. I love its benefits. My garden soil doesn't float away from me. But having those benefits means that I have to live according to its laws. You can't have part of it and not the rest. He's illustrating this truism that to come into the feast is to abide by the terms of the feast, to live according to the king of the feast. Historically, even in the present, even in our own lives at times, we see that there are many, oftentimes us, who have this tendency to want the benefits of the feast, the benefits of the kingdom, but don't want to come in on the terms of the kingdom. It's a very natural move of the heart to make. I want Jesus' love and forgiveness and the things that he gives me. But I also want to keep living by my own standards. And Jesus is illustrating in this final scene that you can't have it that way. That last epigram, many are called, but few are chosen. To be chosen in the Hebrew sense is uh, two things at once. It's both to be graciously selected by God. I choose you. I want you. I call you but it's also to receive that selection with faith and repentance and obedience. In other words, Abraham was chosen because God both called him and he responded to that call in faith and obedience. Being chosen is more than just God saying yes, it's you saying yes in return. And what he's saying in this epigram at the end is that many will be called. Many will be called. But not a lot of them will be chosen because not a lot of them will respond in faith, in obedience, and repentance. It's a powerful parable. I thought about it a lot last spring because of Kairos. This prison ministry, I thought about it a lot at that moment because of the fact that there are so many who in the world standards deserve the invitation They've got everything put together, their lives are in order, they're educated, they actually care about the right sorts of things, they're good citizens, and when the invitation comes to them, they scorn it and mock it and reject it. And then you see these men going into prison to issue the same invitation to those with no value in the eyes of the world, those sleeping under the park benches and in the hedges, in the words of this parable. And over and over, those people saying yes to the invitation. I thought about that because I thought about the Father's words, my house will be full, my feast will be full, and how frequently the only people willing to take up those words and fill that feast are those people who are at the very bottom of the barrel. I think it's easy to sort of try to write that off. It's like, yeah, because they've got no hope. It's just a cry of desperation from them. And there's certainly some truth in that, but the reality is, and this is really actually where I want to go today, The reality is that Jesus seems particularly delighted to fill his kingdom with those that the world despises. He seems particularly thrilled to build his kingdom with those that mean nothing in the eyes of the world. If you want an Old Testament picture of this, this is when David's on the run from Saul. He's out in the wilderness, and what you see here is a prototype of the kingdom of God. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Abdullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became commander over them. You see this prototype of the kingdom in that beautiful passage, that the people gathering around the king are those who are broken and hurting in all sorts of ways. You see it again in the New Testament. This is 1 Corinthians 1, where Paul says to the Corinthians, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. It's not just those that the world despises, those that the world's forgotten, those who are bitter and in distress because of what's happened to them. It's also those those that have done everything wrong themselves, Later in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. And then most stunningly, he says, but such were some of you. Stunning. You don't deserve it, he says. And yet such were you, and you were washed, and you were sanctified, you were transformed. My point in those passages is that God seems to delight in bringing the unlikeliest of candidates into his kingdom. All throughout the Bible, you see this message, that those who are poor and broken and hurting, those who've done everything wrong in their lives, those who've had everything wrong done to them, those who have nothing left, these are the sort of people that he says, go find them and fill my house with them. If you look at the early church, the majority of the converts in the early church were people that the world thought meant nothing. Slaves, women, non-citizens, children, people that the Roman Empire despised and pushed down. And these were the people that God used to build the church, the nobodies of this world. Throughout the history of the world, He's built his kingdom with the lowly of the world. It's stunning. It's one of the reasons why when the church has pretensions to power, it's misunderstanding its place in the world. Witness, yes. Influence, yes. Impact in the public sphere, transforming culture and society, yes and yes and yes. But pretensions to power, to rule, to control, you've missed the heart of God where he's perpetually going after the lowliest of the lowly and saying, come in, come in, come in. He looks for people who are cast out, who are worthless, who are insignificant. He looks for those sorts of people, people who have no value in the world, no advantages, who've made all the mistakes, who are full of guilt and shame, who have burdened and exhausted souls. He looks at those people and he says, come. Come sit at my table. Come sit at my table. There's two things that flow for us from this today. The first one is very simply that if you view yourself as the worthless, if you view yourself as the one who is forgotten, overlooked, of no value in the eyes of others, if you view yourself as the one who's done everything wrong, who is full of the shame and the guilt of the things that you cannot undo, if you view yourself like this, hear this parable. God longs to fill his kingdom with people like you. If you see yourself in that way, remember that God delights to fill his kingdom with those whose souls are weary and exhausted and can't barely take another step. God delights to fill his kingdom with those who are unvalued and despised by the world. In other words, if you view yourself like this, enter into the feast of the king. No matter how painful it is, trade the robes of your shame For the robes of the Lamb. In other words, repent of your sins. Acknowledge them out loud, how much it breaks your heart to say it. Say it out loud. Acknowledge it. Plunge in, no matter how feebly, into faith and obedience and accept the invitation. Let Him fill you with value. Let Him be the one who notices you, the one who remembers you. In other words, if you view yourself in that way, Come in because the kingdom is actually for you. But secondly, in this, we can actually hear very clearly what it means for those outside this room. There are people who are broken and battered by life all around every single one of us, people who view themselves as worthless, crushed by their shame, forgotten by this world. There are people, in other words, to whom we should take this invitation. We should take it to the advantaged and the powerful, those who should know better. But don't be despised if it means very little to them. Don't be despised if they mock it and belittle it. And the message of this parable, it's, well, then go find the broken. Go find the weary. Go find the exhausted. Go to the broken person and tell them there's a king who wants you at his table. And when they look at you like you're crazy, because I think most people would if you just showed up and said, there's a king who wants you at his table, when they look at you like you're crazy, tell them just very simply that there is a place for them. That there is a place for them. A place where they will not be forgotten and neglected and of no value. Tell them that there is someone who actually values them. Someone who would wash away their guilt and their shame, the things that they carry in their conscience that they can't actually deal with. Tell them that there is one who would offer them a life they cannot create for themselves. That life that they've been trying so hard to create but so unsuccessfully? Tell them those things. Invite them in. Invite them to the presence of Jesus. The church is the place where the coming kingdom of God breaks into this world. It's the foretaste, the first taste, the appetizer of the kingdom. If you look around, you'll go, Well, at least from the perspective of the people sitting in this room, it's a fairly mediocre mediocre foretaste of the kingdom. We're not that special. What's so big about the kingdom if this is the foretaste? But if you look at what happens here from the perspective of God, you might begin to get a glimpse. Because here, forgiveness of sins is actually pronounced. Imagine that just being a foretaste of the fullness of what it will mean to be set free. Here, the love of God is declared. Imagine that just being a foretaste of what it will mean to be enveloped fully in his love. Here in this place, we are invited to sit at the very table of God himself. Imagine that just being a foretaste of what it will be. Here in the church, we are offered the very life of God. Imagine that being just a foretaste. These are the foretaste of the kingdom that are enacted in the church. Sins are forgiven, the love of God proclaimed, the feast of the Lord going on and on and on, the life of God filling us. This life of God that is a life of faith, the life that we are invited into as we move further in and further in into the kingdom of God. As we go deeper and deeper into this kingdom, what do we see at the heart? No one but the risen lamb, slain for you and for me. The risen lamb looking at you, longing to hold you, looking at you with his eyes of fierce jealousy and love, delighting in you and calling you onwards. Hear his invitation and take that to those around you who are broken and lost. Amen.